Well, good morning, everybody. Let me encourage you to come and find a seat. Um, we're delighted that you've come to join with us this morning. My name is Duncan. I have the, the pleasure of serving as pastor of the church here. And if you're a regular here, or if this is your first time, or you're visiting with us, you're very welcome here. We're here to worship the Lord, and we believe that there is an awful lot of good reasons why we must do that. And to help us focus our hearts on that, let me read some verses of Scripture. These are taken from 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. The reading this morning is from Exodus chapter 17 verses 1 to 16. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek, while Moses, Aaron and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed, and whenever he lowered his hand, 
Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Thank you. Do keep those words in front of you. Um, You'll find them printed in the diary if you don't have a Bible to hand. In Psalm 42, David, the king of Israel, writes from the depths of sorrow. He doesn't explain exactly his circumstances. He simply says that his soul is cast down. The most painful blows were what others said when they looked on at his misery. Listen to what David describes. My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? It grieved David because those questions are the kind of questions that would begin to seep into his own heart, only deepen his sorrow until he began to wonder, where is God? Is the Lord with me? And it's still a regular refrain. Many look on at the sorrows, the wickedness, and the injustice of our world, and they ask, is the Lord with us? Or they look on at those who believe in God, and they see that they go through the same heartaches as everyone else. They get sick, they lose loved ones, they lose their jobs. Is the Lord with them? Or for Christians who love the Lord Jesus, who trust in Him, who live their life for Him, and life takes the bitterest of turns, they experience pain that they wouldn't wish on their worst enemy, and they ask, and hey, maybe you're asking today, is the Lord with me? And it's exactly the question that was asked by God's ancient people Israel in the verses that Fiona just read for us. This is a retelling of events that took place three and a half thousand years ago when the Israelites were rescued by God from slavery in Egypt. For this generation of God's people, the only life that they had ever known was a life in slavery. And now God has rescued them, but they've got a lot to learn. 
And we saw in chapters 15 and 16, when they had no water, they grumbled against God. When they had no food, they grumbled against God. But time and again, God was patient with them, provided for them. And here in chapter 17, well, they've still a lot to learn. Notice in verse 1 that we're told that they're traveling according to the commandment of the Lord. In other words, God was telling them where to go, and they were listening and obeying. And the journey brought them to this place called Rephidim, somewhere in eastern Egypt. And this name, Rephidim, it means something like a place to spread out maybe even the place to recline. Israel has obediently followed God here, and it really sounds like the place to be, doesn't it? But it is not a place to recline. What happens, verse 1, but there was no water for the people to drink. And once that crisis has been dealt with, you see what it says in verse 8, Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. God has led them into a place of discomfort and danger, and the Israelites don't respond well. Their tendency to grumble now shows itself to be an ingrained habit. And though they will complain about the lack of water, the real question they're asking is shown to us in verse 7. What is it that they asked? Is the Lord among us or not? Here God shows them what kind of God He is, and He answers definitively the question that perhaps troubles your heart today. Is the Lord with us? I mean, the crisis that faced the children of Israel was real. When you're out in the desert, you have your family to look after, it is no small thing to run out of water. But their response to the crisis reveals a lot. It reveals everything. We're told that they quarreled with Moses in verse 2. Or perhaps more accurately, it could be they accused Moses They brought a charge against Moses. And you see what the charge is in verse 3. Why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Is that what you've done, Moses? And more than just the accusation, they're ready to bring upon Moses the sentence that such a crime deserves. When Moses goes to the Lord, he says to them, these guys are ready to stone me. They're ready to kill Moses for this. But what the Israelites are showing here is simple forgetfulness. And what we see in this part of chapter 17 is that when God's people forget, they lose faith. When God's people forget, they lose faith. Well, what had they forgotten? Straight away, what they've forgotten is that it's not Moses who brought them to Rephidim. It was God who brought them here. And so, it's not really Moses that they are accusing. It's God. And we take that a stage further. It's not really Moses whom they want to stone to death. It's God. Elsewhere in the Bible, this scene is used 
more than once as an example for, for us to learn from. Um, so you see in verse 7 that the particular place in Rephidim is called Massa and Meribah. And um, those words mean quarreling and testing. It's forever going to be labeled like that. Now listen to, to this warning from Psalm 95. It says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. This is God's analysis of what's happened here. They were putting him to the test, even though they had known God firsthand. They had seen his work, and yet they'd forgotten. They had seen his display of power in bringing judgment upon Egypt. They'd seen God's great power and authority over nature. God had turned the river Nile into blood. He'd plagued the land with, with frogs, with flies, with gnats, with locusts. They had seen God open up the Red Sea and then close it up again. And they'd already seen him overcome a water shortage. And they'd forgotten. I don't suppose it's that they had forgotten these things happened, but they were no longer a reality that affected things for them in the here and now. The God who did all of this for them is the same God who has led them to Rephidim. And yet, what is it they seem to say here? They seem to say, yeah, 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 we know what you've done in the past, but what have you done for us lately, Lord? Why should we trust you now? Prove yourself. They're testing the Lord. And it's that word that's used twice in these verses, verse 2 and verse 7. They're testing Him. And God answers. And again, we must be struck that God's response to this is marked out with, with remarkable patience. He acts to remind them of what they've forgotten. So from verse 5, Moses is instructed to walk out before the people, take some of the elders of Israel with them, but crucially, take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile. The staff in Moses' hand. It's just a piece of wood, but the instrument he put in Moses' hand to repeatedly signify his power. It's as if this is to be paraded in front of the Israelites again to say, remember, remember what God did through just even this piece of wood in Egypt. And another display of God's power over nature comes here. Moses strikes the rock, and from the rock comes, comes water, and the people drink. What is God saying to them in this act? He's answering again their deepest doubts. He's saying that He is with them. He is the same God of all power over nature who rescued them from Egypt, and He uses that power to provide for them, even drawing water from a rock. Now, this all seems very far from us, 
It's far away from us in time, in geography, and in almost every context. But it's not as far as you might think. Um, The Apostle Paul, some 1,500 years later, was writing to a church that was struggling, struggling with, with how to live as those who now belong to Jesus. And in order to help them, he takes them back to the book of Exodus. You would find this in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And he speaks to them there, reminding them about all of the privileges that these Israelites in Exodus had. And he comes to this privilege in verse 4 of 1 Corinthians 10. He says, all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. The rock that they drank from was Christ, Paul says, of these words that we've read together. The spiritual rock that was with the Israelites was the Lord. He was the source of the water. He was with them in the desert. And so Jesus Christ, who is God, He was present, providing for them. Paul's saying that in this rock there is a picture of Jesus Christ, a representation of His presence with His people to provide for them. And it's actually a very good picture. Elsewhere in the Bible, Jesus is described as a stumbling block or or a rock of offense. I mean, just think of it. Where is God sending these Israelites to find water? To a rock in the desert. And to all appearances, the rock is lifeless. It possesses none of the properties that are required for life-giving streams of water. And in a similar way, many people look on at Jesus and think exactly the same thing. This one who was born into a poor family in the hinterland of some small province of the Roman Empire. He never rose to any position of earthly authority. His closest followers were uneducated. He was rejected by the establishment and sentenced to death by crucifixion. Yes, crucifixion, the most shameful mode of death in the Roman world, reserved for the lowest of the low, something that every culture on earth despised and viewed the one who was crucified as being somehow cursed by God. And this, this is the Savior of the world. This is the one that every creature on earth owes their allegiance to. Are you sure? But in fact, the cross of Christ that appears to be His defeat, that appears to be His weakness, is in fact God's weapon for victory. Because there Jesus is fully obedient to God's will that leads him to lay down his life for his people. The perfect life laid down in the place of the sinner. And when we understand that this transaction is taking place on the cross, well, we see that this rock of offense is a fountain of life, a fountain of eternal life and confirmed to us by Jesus' resurrection from the dead. And in much the same way as for these Israelites, 
we need to remember that if God would give his precious son to suffer and to die in order to free us from sin and give us life, then he's not going to abandon you now. He's already given us the best that heaven could offer. And the rock in Exodus served the Israelites in the way that Christ serves the church. He provides for all her needs. This is the great significance of Jesus telling his disciples before he ascends back to heaven, and as he sends them out into the world to make disciples of all nations, he says, and listen, I will be with you even to the end of the age. The significance is he's with to give them the spiritual food and drink, to sustain them, to grow them, to equip them. And he's here doing that right now, still. But there's more at Rephidim, isn't there? Attacks that catch the enemy off guard can be the most devastating. When Japan attacked Pearl Harbor in 1941, America was utterly blindsided, and more than 3,000 men lost their lives, and their navy was significantly damaged. And here in Rephidim, the place to spread out, the Israelites come under attack. Amalek comes out to fight. You see that verses 8 through to 16. Amalek was a a distant cousin of the Israelites, a descendant of Jacob's brother Esau. And here Amalek launches a cowardly attack. And I say cowardly because later on Moses will remind the Israelites about this attack. And listen to what marked it out. This is from Deuteronomy 25. Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you, and he did not fear God. Amalek's cowardice was that he went after the stragglers, the weakest members of the group. Oh, he didn't come after the leaders. They didn't attack the strong men but those who were least able to defend themselves. It was a wicked and a cowardly act. And God decrees some severe things against Amalek. I'm sure you spotted that, verses 14 and verse 16. But it's God's judgment against their wickedness and their opposition to God's work. At this point in history, 1500 BC, God's plan for the salvation of the world is wrapped up in this people. These descendants of Abraham, he's going to make them into a nation from which will come the Messiah. And so anyone who would seek to destroy this nation in 1500 BC is doing the devil's work specifically targeting God's plan of redemption for this fallen world. Now, of course, God's not building a nation today. He's building a spiritual people in the church. 
this sort of this sort of promise, this sort of command will not come to us against any group. But it certainly does highlight how seriously God takes opposition to his great purposes for his people. And what must this attack have done for these Israelites? So easily discouraged, so easily losing their confidence in God, this must have been devastating. And Moses is decisive here. He orders Joshua in verse 9, go get some fighting men together to come against Amalek. And what are we ready to read about next? We're ready to read about swords and shields and battles and battlefield tactics. We're ready to hear all of that, aren't we? That's where the action is. That's where the most exciting stuff is. But no, God wants us to understand that the real action was not taking place down in the valley of war where men held swords in their hands, but was taking place up on the hill where an 80-year-old Moses was holding the staff of God in his hand. That's where the action was. And you can be forgiven for being bewildered by this because we're told that when Moses' hands, i.e. his hands with God's staff in it, when they were up, well, God's people prevailed. But when he became weary and his hands were lowered, then Amalek prevailed. And so the real battle here is to keep Moses' hands aloft. And we're seeing here, and we'll see in the next chapter too, that Israel is learning that Moses is not able to do everything for them alone. Here he needs the input of Joshua to fight. He needs the support of Aaron and Hur to keep his hands aloft. They kept his hands steady until the day was done and the battle was won. But how do we make sense of that? Well, what do these two episodes in chapter 17 have in common? The thing they have in common is the staff in Moses' hands. This reminder of God's presence with his people. As we've said already, it was just a piece of wood, but it represented so much more than that. It was the visible reminder of who was in their midst. And the significance of Moses holding up this staff, it's entirely for the sake of the Israelites. God doesn't need any of these theatrics to convince him to do something. It's all for the sake of his people. And so for them, down in the valley, in the battle, to see up on the hill the staff of God on show was the reminder to them of God's promise to them. It was the reminder to them of God's presence with them. So long as they could see that staff, all of these things they would be reminded of. These are people who had no confidence in themselves. They needed to remember that God fights for them. And so we learn in this episode here that God's people find victory when they see his promises clearly. God's people find victory when they see his promises clearly. I mean, sometimes we think of, of Jesus and we assume that he must have just glided through life because he was the Son of God, after all. But that could not be further from how he's presented to us. 
He's one who we see is deeply grieved and burdened by the situations he encountered, and of course by what he had to endure. How did Jesus keep going? The writer to the Hebrews encourages Christians with the example of Jesus. He says this, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. It was the promise of the joy that lay on the other side of his suffering that enabled Jesus to endure the shame and the pain of his sufferings. Clearly seeing God's promise was key to finding victory. And it remains the case for God's people. Without this, without this, we are headed only for discouragement and defeat. When the church in Scotland seems to only be in decline, when our efforts to reach people with the gospel don't bear the fruit that we'd hoped for, when we suffer those heartaches that we thought about at the start, What is it that keeps you going through that? Seeing God's promises clearly. That's what will. And where will we see that? We see that in the Word of God. It's there as we read and as we listen and we take in, we find Jesus has promised to build His church. And he promises that the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. When we see that clearly, we keep going because we know where we're heading. He has promised that there will not be a moment in the history of the church when he won't be with his people, even through persecutions, even through disappointments. He has given the Holy Spirit within every believer to renew them to build them up in Christ so that even if what you see on the outside is fading away and the body is falling to bits, inwardly, He will renew us day by day. That's the promise. He's promised to bring every one of His children safely home. Even though the journey will hurt at times, having that promise clear that we know where we're going will bring us through. He has promised that the way that He brings people into the family of God is as they hear the message of the gospel and respond in faith. And so, even when we're not seeing the fruit that we wish for, we cling to that promise and we keep going. And so, the great project at Rephidim was to keep God's promises clearly in view. This is why it took three men on the hill to hold up a wooden staff, because this needs to be clearly on display. And friends, this is the great group project that we've signed up for if we're part of this church, to help each other to see God's promises 
clearly so that we might keep going. That's what we're here for. That's why we've gathered this morning, so that we might help each other to see God's promises clearly, so that we might keep going. It's very easy for churches to be places where God's promises are obscured. They're hidden behind some other things. And one that's repeatedly come up in Exodus 15, 16, and 17 applies here, I think, because what was it that obscured God's promises for the Israelites? It was their, their grumbling. And, I mean, it may come as news to you, but churches can be places where there's grumbling. And the, the reason why it obscures God's promises is because it shifts our focus away from the sufficiency, the wisdom, and the grace of God. And it puts all of our focus on the thing that we're uncomfortable with, the thing that we're unhappy with. It suddenly dominates the room, and it obscures the promises of God. Now, don't hear me wrong. There is always space for raising concerns in the life of the church. We need that. We need that. But we must have other frequencies on the dial to transmit than just moaning, right? There are other frequencies on the dial. We want to do all of these things to be constructive, to build up, to encourage, and all the while trusting the Lord. And if that's the posture we have, we can talk about anything, right? And we're being shown here that Moses can't do this on his own. He needs others. And for us too, this is not one man's job. It's not two men's job. It's not five men's job. We're all here to point each other to the promise of the gospel again, that we might find strength and hope and renewed confidence in the Lord Jesus. And it's as the members of the body of Christ speak the truth in love to each other that they build one another up and the whole structure grows into the fullness of Christ. And so I want to ask, if you're a Christian here today, who have you been doing that for? Who have you been helping to see the promises of God more clearly so that they might keep going? Who could you do that for? Maybe even over tea and coffee after this service or throughout this week. Who could you connect with in some meaningful way simply to encourage them to see the promises of the gospel more clearly? Is the Lord with us? I want to say to you that there is a definitive answer to that question. And the definitive answer is tucked away in some of our Christmas Bible readings. Matthew tells us that the announcement of Mary's pregnancy was a fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means... God with us. You can answer this question with an emphatic yes if you know and trust Jesus Christ. He is 
Emmanuel, God with us. He is the one who suffered the abandonment of God on the cross so that you might never have to know what it is to be abandoned by God. And for the Christian, that is the most precious thing of all. And we get to remember that now as we turn our attention to the Lord's Supper, which is laid out on this table in front of us, where again we are brought back to the death of Christ, where we are helped to see the promise of the gospel clearly again, to remember God's power to save, power that He extends to us to save us from our sins.